Amen. Well, good morning, City Light. As Eric said, uh, my name is Dave, and I have the honor to serve on the elder team here at our church. And, and as elders, we are a group of men who just love the City Light family. Uh, we, we have a heart to shepherd, guide, and care for the church, um, and just see that the impact of City Light grow in every way possible. Uh, but today, I have, the, I have the privilege to dive into Scripture with you as we continue our series through Matthew called A King enthroned. Have you ever thought about where your understanding of love between two individuals comes from? You know, how you personally express love. Where did you learn that from? Was it your parents? From books? From movies? With the exception of a few movies, I hope that's not the case. (laughs) Now, in, in my younger years, my idea of love was shaped by watching TV. Namely, The Love Boat. Does anybody remember that show? Yeah, don't judge me, okay? Now, you can still find reruns on TV today in case you want to study up on on what love looks like. But thankfully, I have matured since then, and I've grown beyond my image of love portrayed on that TV show by Captain Steubing and Julie, the cruise director. You know, one, one source that I have found helpful in this area is a book by Jer- Gary Chapman called The Five Love Languages. Uh, this has been an incredibly helpful book for me as a husband. And r- right from Gary Chapman's website, here, here is what he has to say about his book. With a little help from The Five Love Languages, you can learn to identify the root of your conflicts, give and receive love in more meaningful ways, and grow closer than ever. Your love language profile will explain your primary love language, what it means, and how you can use it to connect with others. And I have found that to be true. The five love languages are words of affirmation, acts of service, receiving gifts, quality time, and physical touch. Now, reading that book and, and taking the love language profile quiz has helped Dory and I in our marriage. I now know what expressions of love best communicate uh, with my wife. For her, quality time is at the top of the list. Um, It only took me 28 years to figure that out, you know. (laughs) But granted, I am on the accelerated fast track program for above average and gifted husbands. So it didn't take me long to figure that out. For me, words of affirmation go a long way. You know, I, I could take out the trash and Dory could say, say to me, good job, honey, and I'll be floating around the house for a week. You know, just a little bit of affirmation goes a long way. Well, each of us have, have different ways that we communicate or, or show love and, the, and ways that we best receive it and hear it. This morning in our text, we want to look at an event in the life of Jesus where a woman expressed her love for him in in what, at first glance, seems like an unusual way. Now, now the context of this scripture is important, so let, let me take a minute and try to set the scene for you. Now, it's the time in Israel's calendar where they are, are about to celebrate a special event called Passover. Now, Passover is a significant meal that begins a major festival called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, this feast would entail a pilgrimage 
for all the Israelites to come to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. And, and they would gather together to celebrate and remember their nation's exodus from Egypt and their subsequent freedom from slavery. Now, I want to give you a quick historical interlude here, because this is important. In, in the book of Exodus, the Israelites were enslaved to the Egyptians as menial servants. And during that time, God appears to a prophet named Moses. And he tells Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh, who's the ruler of Egypt, and tell, tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And God then uses a series of ten plagues to show how powerful he is and how, how little the Egyptian gods are. And it culminates in the tenth and final plague of the death of the firstborn. Here's how it's described in Exodus chapter 11. This is Exodus 11, starting in verse 4. It says, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and, I will, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the slave girl, who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the cattle. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. Well, before this plague takes place, God instructs the Israelites to mark the door frames of their home with lamb's blood. I know that might seem a little weird, but they're instructed to do so in order that God would then pass over their homes and their homes would not be touched by the death of the firstborn. Exodus chapter 12 puts it this way, and this is where we get the name from. It is the Lord's Passover, it says. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt will execute, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood, that, that lamb's blood, shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So the deliverance that God brought his people, this redeeming from slavery and calling them out of Egypt to be his very own people, is a significant high point in the history of Israel. And that's what they're commanded to remember in this Passover meal and this feast of the unleavened bread. Okay, back to Matthew chapter 26. So picture the setting. Jerusalem now is busy with activity because all these pilgrims are coming to celebrate this feast. They're going through the rituals of purifying themselves so that they can enter the temple and worship. The families would have been preparing the meal, gathering together all the things necessary to celebrate the Passover meal together. And it's here that we find Jesus, the disciple, and two other characters. And it's in this setting that there are two different pourings. Two different pouring outs that we want to look at this morning, which are the, the two points of my sermon today. The first is pouring out of ointment, and the second is the pouring out of blood. The, the first is the passion of an unnamed woman, and the second is the passion of our Savior, Jesus the Christ. Now the scene is in the home of Simon the leper, Scripture calls him. Now, that's interesting enough right there to be known as the leper. 
Uh, we don't know anything more about this Simon. In fact, this is the only time that he is mentioned in Scripture. But he has probably been touched and healed by Jesus because he's having people over to his home and they're sharing a meal together. So in the home of Simon, who's known as the leper, an unnamed woman comes to Jesus. Well, in, in John, one of the other gospel accounts, she's named as, as Mary. But here, Matthew intentionally leaves her unnamed. And I think he does so to make a contrast. A contrast between the, the, the anonymous woman and the high priest Caiaphas, who was named a few verses earlier. Ca Caiaphas was plotting to kill Jesus, and this unnamed woman displays passion in what seems like a radical and reckless way. Look again at what she does in verse 7. A woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head. You know, I would love to see where this woman would fall in the five love language categories. You know, po possibly her expressions of love towards Jesus would, would be acts of service. But not just a simple act of service, but acts of service to the 10th power. Or we might say it's, it's acts of service taken a little too far. At least that's how the disciples interpreted her actions. Well, this morning I want to highlight three different things about this woman's expression of devotion and love towards Jesus. First is that she loved Jesus above all. The pouring of this ointment was really an act of worship, an act of devotion. It, it was her way of saying, Jesus, you are first in my life. And everything else, everyone else comes after you. Everything else is second. You know, I, I fear in our own lives, sometimes we treat our faith in Christ as an add-on. You know what I mean? A little Jesus here, sprinkle a little Jesus there, and we call it good. Let this woman be an example for us. You know, it challenges us, I feel, to, to consider where our allegiance lies. You know, her allegiance was to Christ and Christ alone. And she demonstrated that so that everybody else there in that home knew exactly who was first in her life. Well, second, her, her demonstration of love was costly. Now, I, I have to admit, when the English Standard Translation of the Bible, which, which is what I'm using today, when it uses the word ointment, my first thought goes to something that I'd pick up in the pharmacy aisle at Walgreens. You know, I, I, I don't think of much beyond that. that. That's how my Western mind thinks. So I start thinking to myself, you know, maybe Jesus had a cut and needed some Neosporin and a Band-Aid. You know, maybe he got into some poison ivy and he needed some extra strength hydrocortisone ointment to soothe it. Or, or maybe, maybe wearing, wearing sandals all day long was hard on his feet and he needed some tough acting tenactin just to soothe him between his toes. You know, that's what I think of when I hear the word ointment. But that's not the case here. And thank goodness it's not. Matthew describes it as very expensive ointment. Now, Mark and John's Gospels tell us that it's pure nard, which is an oil made from the root of the nard plant from India. 
A jar like this was, was worth a, literally a year's salary, maybe thirty dollars to $50,000 in today's money. And being a flask, it would have been sealed, so to use it, you'd have to break it, so it was a one-and-done thing. So I was kind of curious about that, so I did a little Google search on high-end perfumes to, that are on the market today, and I was shocked and amazed at how much people would spend on one ounce of liquid to smell good. But I learned that the price of perfume is really centers around three different things. One is the scarcity and the quality of the materials inside. The, the second is the ornamentation of the bottle itself. And you could, buy, you could buy some literally with diamonds on the bottle. And third, the craftsmanship of the master perfumer who concocted all this and put it together. So the cost of one ounce of, of these perfumes today can run into the five and even six digits for, for perfume. So I guarantee you that you won't find these on the shelves at Walmart next to Old Spice or Act for Men, you know. So guys, guys, let me give you a little tip here. When your wife asks for perfume for Christmas, save yourself from financial ruin and just hand her a bar of Irish Spring soap. You know? So, but, but imagine for a minute. Imagine taking your entire annual salary, whatever that is, and giving it all as an expression of loyalty and passion and love to Jesus. If you did that, you would have more than just a few people saying, just like the disciples, what a waste. You know, and as I studied this passage, as, as I prepared for the sermon, man, I was challenged by that. Because you're going to find those who are not Christ followers that think it's a waste for you to give some of your hard-earned money to the church as an offering. You're going to have people think it's a waste that, that you give some of your money to plant new churches in West Council Bluffs or Southwest Iowa or Rwanda. Some are going to question your sanity when you redirect some of the money, your hard-earned money, away from what you used to spend it on and towards the work of Jesus through his church. So the actions of this woman bring before us a very real question. And that's, are we willing to love Jesus with, with what is most valuable to you? Wh whatever that might be. Are we willing to, to take that and give it over to Jesus? Are we willing to, to let it go if he calls us to do so? As we can imagine, the disciples that day balk at this display of passion and call it a waste. But interestingly enough, Jesus immediately comes to her defense and says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. So this wasn't a frivolous and, and wasteful use of some high-end perfume. It was an act of worship. It was an expression of devotion. She loved Jesus above all, and she knew that it was costly to do so. But there's a third thing I want to point out today, and that she loved Jesus for who he said he was. Now Jesus goes on to use this, this moment to teach his disciples. Because look, look at what he says in verses 12 and 13. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly, I say to you, what, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. As we read verse 12, you know, we, one way to read it is to say that while her actions show that she loved Jesus above all and that it was costly, she didn't necessarily understand or get the symbolic value of what she was doing. You know, in reference to his burial, Jesus relates her actions to a normal burial rite, which, which would have been pouring perfume over the deceased to help drench the, the smell of a dead body. In, in other words, this woman acted better than she knows. With the oil on his body, she unknowingly signifies his in, impending death. And perhaps... Matthew's emphasis on the oil going on his head emphasizes this, she, that she's anointing him as king. So here's this unnamed, anonymous woman anointing the anointed one, which is what the word Messiah means, anointed. So she acted as, as best she could. And with the only way she knew how. And you know what? I think the same holds true for us today. We don't have to know all there is to know about Jesus before we can begin to live a lifestyle of worship. We don't have to understand a whole, a whole lot of scripture. You know, we don't, we don't need to know everything that there is to know. And you realize, you know, not until we pass away and see Jesus face to face will we understand who he truly is but we can begin to act on what we know now. So don't let that lack of understanding, don't let a lack of knowledge stop you from loving Jesus for who he says he is. And he is the son of man who, is de who was delivered over to die, was buried and rose again to take away the punishment for our sins. And by doing so, he restored for us the reality of a relationship with God the Father a relationship that he desired and wanted from the very beginning. And Jesus is calling us into that relationship today. But that's only the first pouring. Our story doesn't stop there. A few verses later, there's another display of passion, a second pouring out. And this time, it's not Chanel number five. Look again at verses 26 through 28. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. One unnamed woman pours out ointment as an expression of love and devotion. And here Jesus, we see Jesus pouring out his blood as the ultimate expression of love for us, for you, and for me. There's some parallels here between these two expressions of love. You see, Jesus loved, loved the Father above all. So much so that he was willing to take on the punishment for our sins. He left the Father's side and temporarily stepped away from his glory and stepped into the world to rescue us from sin. 
His love for us was also costly. In fact, it was a whole lot more than any high-end perfume that you can buy today. He paid the ultimate price with his own life given up on the cross in order to bring salvation and life to us. And he loves us for who we are as sinners in need of a Savior. You see, Jesus doesn't wait for us to be cleaned up, tidied up, and spiritually spiffed up, but before he welcomes us. Folks, salvation is a come-as-you-are event, but it never intends to stay where we are. He sees us for who we can become when the Holy Spirit dwells within us and begins to transform us from the inside out. I started this morning with a brief historical excursion into the significance of the Passover and the Exodus. I did so because Jesus brings it back around in our text today. Because his reference of pouring out of his blood as part of a new covenant, he's tying it back to the Passover itself. But this time, it's not the blood of a lamb spread on a doorframe. He, he says, it's now my body and my blood. And Jesus' death becomes a new exodus. Except this time, the firstborn is not passed over. It's the death of the firstborn, the Son, the one and only Son of God, as Jesus himself. Through his death and burial and resurrection, Jesus delivers us not from slavery in Egypt, but from the slavery of sin. And that, my friends, is the gospel message in, in a nutshell. And as Christians... As Jesus followers, we celebrate and remember this with a different kind of meal. We don't call it Passover. We call it the Lord's Supper or communion. And it's a sign for those who follow Jesus into this new covenant of life. And we're going to celebrate that today. If you haven't had a chance to, to grab a communion cup, uh, let me encourage you to do so now. But because when we take communion, it gives us an opportunity to look backward. Backward, and it points to the historical accomplishment of salvation as a finished act. And we can look even further back to that Passover event. So when we look back, we can rest knowing that salvation is the finished work done on the cross. But communion not only looks back, it also looks forward as well. We look forward to a time when we can enjoy fellowship with Jesus face to face when we come into his kingdom. Also in the Lord's Supper, we look inward. Because communion is, is a time of, of self-reflection, self-examination. And as we look at our heart, we look, we look in there to see if there's sin to confess. And if there is sin, this is a time to confess it to Jesus, and he will forgive you. In the Lord's Supper, we also look upward. Because we, as we remember Jesus' death on the cross, we realize that that's not the end of the story. So we can come with conviction and, and joy knowing that the Savior lives, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And his resurrection then becomes the foundation for our faith. So it points upward. And you know what? Communion also points outward. 
Because later in Scripture, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, as we take this, we proclaim the Lord's death. We proclaim the gospel message on who Jesus is through communion. And in communion, we also look around. We look around because we do this corporately together as a church family. And since communion emphasizes community, we want to take it together this morning. So go ahead and and peel back that top layer of your cup and let's take the bread of communion together. Peel back that second layer and let's take the juice that Jesus says is his blood shed for us. have one more closing thought this morning. Have you ever wondered how Jesus would score or land on the five love languages quiz? You know, think about the love languages. Words of affirmation? Yep. He he wrote the book on it. We we call it the Bible. Acts of service? Check. You know, does, does healing count? Receiving gifts? Check. I mean, we just took communion as a reminder of the eternal new life that he gives to us. Quality time? Yep. Jesus loves hanging out with people. Physical touch? Check. He was known for touching the untouchable, and his touch heals. Those five love languages? Jesus wrote them. Jesus created them. And he's speaking those to you So today you can respond. We do so in communion, but we also can respond with a profession of faith and allegiance to Jesus as our Lord. So if the Holy Spirit is stern in your life, if you're feeling pulled towards God, man, then come talk to myself or one of the pastors after service today. We'll be hanging around up front, and we would love to visit with you, pray with you, and walk you through what that looks like. But don't leave here today. If God is working in your life, don't ignore it. Step into it. Let me pray this morning. Father, we thank you for who Jesus is. We thank you that he sits on the throne, that he he still reigns today. And it's because of him, Lord, that we are here today. Lord, as one woman poured out ointment as an expression of love and devotion, may we pour out our lives to you as our expression that you are our Lord and Savior. Father, you have expressed and shown your love to us. Lord, may we respond today by giving you our life in return. So, Father, I pray that you work in hearts today in that very way. Move people towards you for your glory and for your praise. We ask this in your name. Amen.